0: I'm Jerry Willis. I'm Steve Ducey. I'm Shannon Bream. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. And Lisa Brady. The Republican presidential field shrinks while the Biden-Harris campaign tries to stay the course.
1: If Joe Biden is incapable of sending the message to them that he's a steady hand when it comes to the economy, when it comes to foreign policy, national security, the border crime, all of the other issues that are dragging him down, uh, then I think he has a real problem on his hands.
2: I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The House may vote today on a plan that kicks the fight over the budget into next year. One analyst says while both parties actually have some solid points in this fight, neither side's come up with a way to address the root of the problem, our debt.
3: The largest government program is Social Security, followed by Medicare, followed by defense, followed by Medicaid. No solution that doesn't look at those four programs is going to solve this problem.
4: And I'm Jason Chaffetz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
0: The timing was a surprise, even for many campaign staffers, when South Carolina Senator Tim Scott announced on Sunday... He's suspending his presidential campaign, telling Fox News...
5: I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim.
0: He's holding off on an endorsement for now, recommending that voters study each candidate and their past. Scott also says that being vice president has never been on his to-do list. Andy Sabin was one of his major Republican donors.
4: He had no debate experience And that really put him behind the eight ball. But my own opinion is he'd make a great vice president. And I don't care what he says. I don't count him out yet.
0: Sabin will now back Nikki Haley, saying she was always his second choice. The Scott campaign had failed to gain traction, despite qualifying for debates and solid fundraising. Reacting to Scott's exit, the Democratic National Committee ripped the entire Republican field, calling it the most extreme in American history. Extreme is a word President Biden's campaign uses a lot as it criticizes Republicans while downplaying the president's low poll numbers including a recent New York Times-Siena College poll that found him trailing former President Trump in several swing states.
6: Polls at this point, a year out from the election, really don't show the actual nature of what the race is going to look like.
0: Kevin Walling is a Democratic strategist and was a surrogate for the 2020 Biden campaign.
6: You know, I remember, you know, back in 2011, Mitt Romney versus, you know, Barack Obama. Mitt Romney was leading, you know, Barack Obama in 10 of the 11 battleground states on an average of, of five points in each of those different states. So I think these early polls are, are pretty unreliable. I think what we've got to do is just hunker down, highlight, you know, the president's accomplishments, especially on the economy, focus on that, you know, flip a lot of people's perspective when it comes to that. You know, the president is underwater with perceptions of his handling of the economy. And I, and I think we've got to do a better job breaking through and connecting with those folks and telling them, you know, all the stuff that the administration has accomplished, right? You got these feelings out there and it's tough to shift those feelings, but we've got a year to do it.
0: There is no escaping though. The concern, at least among some people about his age, his overall fitness for a job that's demanding in the best of times, but even more so with wars and U S forces getting attacked and inflation. If he were to consider not running again, what's the point of no return for that decision in terms of timing
6: there's all kinds of different uh, variables involved in terms of of timing when states are you know closing down the process for getting on the ballot but listen you know this is a president who when the war in ukraine broke out you know took a 7-hour flight back and forth a 10-hour train ride to be in the heart of uh, you know the conflict to show our solidarity with the ukrainians this is a guy who keeps a rigorous schedule uh, is out there. So, you know, again, as the president said, you know, judge him by what he's doing and what he's accomplishing. And I think we've got a story to tell in terms of the vigor of, of the president.
0: The thinking is usually that economic issues matter most to voters. But Israel's fight against Hamas in Gaza is really hitting home for the president. Pro-Palestinian protests outside the White House, outside of one of his Delaware homes, how dangerous is it for the campaign or is it still you know, not likely that foreign policy plays a major role a year from now?
6: Yeah, it's a great question, Lisa. You know, that's always the, the question. Is it going to be a foreign policy election or is it going to be a more of a domestic policy, you know, issues like economy abortion election? But clearly there's an erosion, especially with support among some young people by uh, Muslim American Democrats, Arab American Democrats uh, with the president's support. We've got a year to go. Uh, in terms of how this process is going to play out, how the process in the Middle East is going to play out. Um, And he might, with his uh, stance, bring over more moderate Republicans who view, uh, you know, the president's steadfast support of Israel as a a good thing and projecting strength abroad. So maybe that is, you know, indicative of, of a new coalition that this president can build in the year to come.
0: What about the independent run of RFK Jr. and the potential for a third party run by Senator Joe Manchin, for that matter? Should that be part of the Biden-Harris campaign calculus at this point? Should they be changing anything?
6: It's absolutely a part of the calculus, Lisa, and it's a great question. Listen, back in 2020, uh, we really didn't see any kind of strong third party uh, campaigns. It was mostly between, obviously, the president and former president. Just about 2 percent of Americans Uh, voted for a third-party candidate. I'm more concerned as a Democrat uh, with Jill Stein's campaign, for example, uh, on the Green Party, because the Green Party naturally has ballot access uh, in the 50 states, uh, could provide an alternative. I'm less concerned about Bobby Kennedy Jr. uh, in that it's difficult in many states to get on the ballot as a third-party candidate without a party backing. He can certainly run. He can certainly make a lot of noise. But at the end of the day, if he's not on the ballot in a number of key states, especially battleground states, it's not going to make a difference.
0: Hmm. The president's campaign argues that MAGA Republicans have stood in the way. They need four more years to finish the job. It's not the first time one party or the other has made that kind of argument about needing more time to finish what they've started. Does that actually resonate with voters?
6: I hope it does. I think, you know, we'll, we'll spend a lot of money talking to voters about this and a lot of organizers having these conversations. The president has a lot of unfinished uh, work when it comes to bringing down the cost of more prescription drugs. He's been successful uh, on that front, but there's more to do on achieving child care, on strengthening education. We compare that to the leader of the Republican Party right now who talked about, you know, locking up vermin in a speech in New Hampshire. This is Donald Trump who who smacks uh, fascism really in, in this address that he gave where he uh, indicated that he's not worried about foreign adversaries like China, but is more interested in fighting individuals at home. So the president is going to campaign on ideas on those kind of things. Lisa, to your point that we haven't been able to get done in the first uh, administration and elections are a choice between two different worldviews. And you compare that again to the all out fascism that we saw on display, frankly, in New Hampshire.
0: Former President Trump pledged in a Veterans Day speech to, quote, root out communists, Marxists, fascists and radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. A spokesperson for President Biden's reelection campaign accused him of parroting the autocratic language of Hitler and Mussolini to champion un-American ideas. Criticism the Trump campaign dismissed as part of Trump derangement syndrome. The former president still has a commanding lead over a shrinking Republican field, and recent CNN and CBS polls find him leading President Biden in a hypothetical rematch next November, with more than twice as many in the CBS poll saying they'd be better off financially if Trump wins, 45 percent versus 18 percent.
1: The White House's decision to try to lean into all the different mistakes that they've made over the past year, uh, really when it comes to even branding the state of the economy as Bidenomics, is something that, Really, a lot of Democrats wish that they wouldn't have done it in the first place.
0: Ben Dominich is a Fox News contributor and host of the Ben Dominich podcast.
1: But they seem unwilling to really consider any alternative. And whether you believe that Joe Biden is someone who is responsible for the state of inflation and uh, mortgage rates in America or not, uh, it certainly does not help matters that he seems willing to embrace that as being something that he's proud of. Uh, even as Americans are struggling with it.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, Republicans have made the argument against the Biden agenda, both back in the midterms and again in the off-year elections this month. And Democrats seem to have better results than many expected. So should Republicans be changing their message in any way?
1: I don't think that when it comes to the economy, the Republicans should be changing their message all that much. You know, given that you had the kind of overperformance among Democrats in a number of different midterm elections and also in these off-year elections in 2023, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of things to consider around that. What are the different factors at play? But one thing that seems to be consistent is that people are not assigning the degree of responsibility for the state of the economy uh, to other Democrats the way they are to Joe Biden. If you look at his personal ratings, the way that people rate his performance, and Democrats are going to have to go along with that. And Republicans, in response, are clearly going to you know, use every piece of data that they have uh, to say, you can't trust Joe Biden with another four years of running things.
0: Senator Tim Scott suspending his campaign, though several other you know, candidates with low poll numbers remain. How fast and how much does the GOP field need to consolidate to give anyone a chance even of challenging Donald Trump in the primaries?
1: Well, I think it's already happened. I think that Tim Scott and Mike Pence dropping out over the past uh, couple of weeks is actually something that really does lead to consolidation. I think that in this instance, you know, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are really the only alternatives. They're people who, uh, according to The New York Times polling, do beat Joe Biden, and they certainly have the kind of resources available to them uh, to make use of any kind of early success within Republican primaries in order to really challenge the former president. But at the same time, we have to consider that, you know, the overwhelming odds are in favor of the former president. He basically has all of the advantages of incumbency. And so from the beginning, it was clear that it was going to be an uphill battle for for either of these candidates to really be able to take a hold. But what you have right now is a situation where Ron DeSantis has basically staked out Iowa as being his Alamo, uh, where Nikki Haley has staked out her own state of, of South Carolina as being the place where she's going to make a stand. And if either of them are able to win either of those states, I think we've got a real contest on our hands.
0: Mm. I mean, Democrats presumably will keep hammering a message about MAGA Republicans being extreme. How do Republicans counter that effectively if Trump is the nominee again?
1: The argument from Democrats that Republicans are extreme has a lot more truck in an environment in which people are satisfied with Democrat policies. But i think that in this current context the level of dissatisfaction that we see from americans across the board including those americans who are in the independent category uh, really does lead us to a situation where we have to grapple with a real challenge for joe biden or for the republican candidate whoever the nominee is uh, to try to win those independent voters to their side and if joe biden is incapable of sending the message to them that he's a steady hand when it comes to the economy, when it comes to foreign policy, national security, the border crime, all of the other issues that are dragging him down, uh, then I think he has a real problem on his hands. And that's what has Democrats very concerned.
0: What about RFK Jr.'s new independent campaign? Does that have the potential to hurt the Republican nominee more than President Biden?
1: Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign is something that I think is is very interesting and not just as a protest vote. Uh, He has an appeal that is gained by going outside the typical media landscape, including being very successful when it comes to the podcast environment, Uh, someone who is connected with a lot of different people across the country, uh, especially in the wake of the COVID experience, given his opposition to top-down governmental control on the health policy side of things and a number of other issues. That being said, he's someone who has never actually won office, elected office at any level, uh, and uh, it's something that I think is is particularly challenging, you know, given that he's not somebody who can necessarily self fund to the degree that you know a billionaire candidate or someone like that could. RFK Jr. is someone who I think is going to get some protest votes, but what we typically see is a situation where someone like that polls relatively high at the beginning of the process, and then those numbers diminish as time goes on, and people tend to sort of recognize, well, I want my vote to count. I have to choose between one of these two major party candidates. Uh, That being said, you could end up with multiple third party candidates, all of whom are dragging away from the top, especially in a contest in which we know from the polls, there are large, uh, there's a significant plurality of people who are opposed to voting for either Donald Trump or for Joe Biden.
0: Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and host of the Ben Dominich podcast. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Great to be with you.
4: This is Jason Chaffetz with your Fox News commentary, coming up.
2: The fight over these appropriations bills, the federal budget, cost Kevin McCarthy his job as speaker earlier this year. But the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, is pushing similar buttons with a new unique proposal on how to handle the spending fight. Republicans want steep cuts. Some want steeper ones than what was agreed to with the White House earlier this year.
6: We made a commitment that we will get back to the, the business of actually passing appropriations bills. That has not been done here in a long, long time, as you all know. And so 12 separate appropriations bills moving through the process in regular order. We're running up against the clock on November 17th, and we're obviously aware of that.
2: But for now, Johnson's proposed passing continuing resolutions. So funding things for now at the same spending levels, no cuts through next year but in two camps. Some bills for things like military construction and the VA, transportation, HUD, and agriculture would be funded through about January 19th. The other eight bills, which include funding for Homeland Security, the FBI, the State Department, that would get pushed to early February.
6: I think it, it should be palatable to our our colleagues in the Senate, because they understand we've got to get the, the job done.
2: And while many in Congress expressed opposition to this novel idea, Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy told one Sunday talk show that while it was gimmicky, he was open to it. The House Democratic Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said last week before this specific proposal that the only option here is to come together and pass a budget that helps the American people.
1: And if Republicans are unable to do that over the next few days, then the only approach is to pass a continuing resolution at the fiscal year 2023 levels, period, full stop.
2: So will the GOP sign on to Johnson's idea? Texas Republican Congressman Chip Roy, a proponent of deeper spending cuts, has already said this is a 100% clean CR, continuing resolution, meaning it has no spending cuts. I
5: think it's a very big mistake to walk into this saying you're going to create something that's going to go past with a significant Democrat support and frankly, a whole lot of opposition with your own conference that's where this is headed.
2: So he is 100 percent opposed to it. It appears enough Republicans might agree with Roy. So this split plan idea may be doomed without Democratic support.
3: Well, I think that looking at each appropriations bill individually reduces the likelihood of these huge Christmas tree legislation. Mark
2: Goldwine is senior policy advisor and senior vice president at the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget
3: nobody gets to really read what's in them. And we add all sorts of new spending and tax breaks that has nothing to do with appropriation. I certainly appreciate the idea of trying to separate this out a bit. As a practical matter, having these CRs, these continuing resolutions expire so close to each other means that it's not too different from if they were all together.
2: I was wondering, like, if you're gonna have the debate and you're trying to simplify things, then is that really enough time? And what's the goal here? Is the goal to, okay, let's pass this temporary funding with with no cuts, no changes, really, so that we can have the debate
3: over the holidays and into the next year? Yeah, I think that's the idea. This is pretty common practice. Doesn't mean that it's right, but it's pretty common practice that we don't actually get our job done. We being Congress (laughs) in time. And so they do these kick the cans where they continue at last year's level until they figure it out. I think the idea here is to make it a little bit easier for them to figure out in the next round by dividing it up into two different parts.
2: So November 17th is this Friday. I mean, if we don't have a spending plan or the continuing resolution, kick the can down the road plans passed, what happens? It remind us of the initial harm of a shutdown. I guess that would happen. What? As of Saturday?
3: Yeah. And let's um, let's be realistic for a second. There's not going to be a spending plan with essentially three days left, four days left. The choice is between a kick the can continuing resolution and a government shutdown. The government okay. shutdown. Although the funding would end, you know, midnight Friday, the government shutdown really wouldn't start to happen until Monday. And the first thing that would happen would be the agencies would tell employees which ones get to stay and which ones get to go. And probably nobody would feel much of anything on Monday other than some federal workers. But it accumulates um, because when you go a week, two weeks, a month without federal workers doing their jobs, it starts to add up. It means you can't get your visa process. Um, or you know, your passport renewal, or your taxes. It means that you won't be able to visit national parks or museums. It means that there's going to be increasing backlogs through the things that government does, and those will get worse over time. And it also means we're going to have a bunch of federal workers that are going to be either getting effectively a paid vacation because they're going to go home, we're going to pay them later, or having to continue to work, knowing that they're going to eventually get their paycheck but without being paid on that, you know, biweekly basis in order to be able to mm. pay their rent and feed their family.
2: And, and that really affects morale. Right. We saw that before people became disenchanted either with the work or with the, no, fearing that this could happen again at any time.
3: It does. And even workers, you know, there's workers we consider essential for national security. Actually, it doesn't even have to be for national security. It could be essential for a lot of reasons. But even those that have to work because they're essential, say TSA workers, airport Mm -hmm. security, may get disenchanted when they continue to not get paychecks. And then Mm -hmm. they may choose to call in sick more often. That's what we saw during the last major shutdown. Um, Or just not show up for work because they're not getting paid. Yeah. And this would be like
2: essentially during holiday time. So that would probably just add to the misery. The funding being discussed here, right, right? um appropriations that notably does not include funding for ukraine israel the border you know the 106 billion dollar package that president biden proposed right this this would be talked about separately it sounds like but this is called emergency funding and i imagine the people who hope to be on the receiving end of this money feel like time is of the essence especially ukraine and israel is it possible that package isn't even addressed this year or somehow it would be addressed between thanksgiving
3: and christmas breaks Yeah, so there really are two different tracks. There's one track for normal appropriations. And that's what we're going to kick the can. And then there's a separate track for all of this potential emergency spending, whether it's for Israel or Ukraine, or some um, disaster funding from the forest fires, or whatnot, there was talk about merging these tracks together. And that that could still happen. um, But I think more likely at this point, those tracks are going to separate and we're going to consider emergency spending, either on its own, or possibly as some kind of end of year package.
2: So let's let's talk about the downgrade, um, because after Moody's downgraded the U.S. credit rating outlook from stable to negative, um, Speaker Johnson said, you know, this is President Biden's fault and the Democrats fault because of spending. And the White House said, no, it's the Republicans fault for being chaotic and, and not, you know, coming to agreement and, and, you know, not approving spending plans. Whoever's at fault, does that outlook downgrade impact us, impact our economy?
3: Well, it's not good. Um, Look, <laughs> one downgrade in outlook from AAA stable to AAA negative isn't going to meaningfully affect anything. But this is part of a pattern, which is that increasingly the rating agencies and the markets are looking at the U.S. and say, well, something is broken here. Mm-hmm. You guys have a deficit that is out of control. Your interest rates are rising. Your political system is completely broken. And at minimum, we're going to demand more money for our money. And so we're seeing that through high interest rates.
2: Great, Uh, especially at a time where we're thirty three trillion dollars in debt. You see some Republicans actually saying to Speaker Johnson, you know, no, I'm sorry, I can't do your continuing resolutions into next year because you don't have any spending cuts, you know, to the Republicans point on this. You know, we are now more than thirty three trillion dollars in debt. Right. So and and I was looking I was looking back in time. 2002, we were just over six billion in debt. That was after 9-11. And by 2011, after the bank bailouts and TARP, we were just under $15 billion in debt. So between 2011 and now, I can't really do math, but that seems like a huge increase. So if simply saying, no, I won't approve of the spending is not the answer, how do we break out of this cycle unless some people force the issue and say we, we have to reduce
3: spending? Well, look, the appropriations are only that we're talking about including defense, are only a quarter of the budget. And we actually just did agree to a package to a deal to cut them. That was the Fiscal Responsibility Act. So the next step should be to actually fund at the levels we agreed to, to show the markets that we can actually keep our word. But after that, we need to look much more broadly than discretionary for where to reduce the deficits. The largest government program is Social Security, followed by Medicare, followed by defense, followed by Medicaid. No solution that doesn't look at those four programs is going to solve this problem. And by the same token, no solution that doesn't look at many of the tax breaks in the code, a lot of which are, are, are really distorting to the market, and they're certainly very expensive. Uh, no solution that doesn't look at tax breaks is really going to solve this problem. We are in such a deep hole that we got to be looking at all parts of the budget. And while while I appreciate folks that want to hold the line on the appropriations, that's not where the problem is right now. Uh, What we need to do for appropriations is make sure we're actually sticking to those FRA caps and to extend those caps and and focus on other parts of the budget in order to get our debt under control.
2: Interesting. So you would say, okay, you're right. Um, You you would say to to maybe the, the more hardline conservatives, yes, you're right. We do have to look at spending, but you're not going about it the right way in holding this process up right now. And and to that end, you know, we are seeing in the 2024 cycle, the candidates sort of Try to talk about Social Security and Medicare, but it's such a third rail, right? And everybody's so afraid. It seems like to talk about it or give a hard number to which they'd raise the retirement age. What would you tell both both sides of the political aisle to do when it comes to having this discussion that they think Americans don't want to have because Americans want their Social Security and Medicare?
3: I mean, what I would say is grow up. Um, <laughs> you want to be president of the United States? You want to be a U.S. senator? You want to be a U.S. congressman, congresswoman? That means you're going to have to sometimes tell hard truths. You can't keep lying to the public and telling them everything is going to be okay. When we know that Social Security is only 10 years from insolvency, without any legislation to Social Security, benefits for a new couple retiring in 2033 will be cut by $17,400 on average. And any policymaker that isn't willing to admit that and at least start to discuss possible solutions um, isn't being serious or honest with the American public.
2: What is this level of debt doing to us now? I know that's a huge question, right? Because there's so many small, medium and large impacts to it. Like you just said, other countries look at us and and Moody's looks at us and, and they make judgments on us based on this. Would you say Americans are actually feeling this debt in any significant way?
3: We're absolutely feeling it. The huge inflation that we saw in 2021 and 2022 was in large part, not entirely, but in large part because of the massive deficits we ran over the COVID era. The high interest rates we're seeing now, you know, if you want a mortgage, it's 8%. Um, The federal government's paying 5% on average for new loans. That's in part because of our very high debt. And the slow wage growth that we suffered from, the slow income growth that we've suffered from over the last 20 years, really, that's in part because our debt is crowding out private investment. Investors are putting more and more money into the U.S. Treasury bonds and less into the private sector uh, where the real growth comes from. So the debt is absolutely affecting us today. And it's only going to get worse if we don't do something about it going forward.
2: Mark Goldwyn, Senior Policy Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Thank you so much for joining.
3: Thank you for having me.
7: Gianna Jolosi with your Fox True Crime Minute. A Michigan woman is behind bars accused of lighting men in her life on fire. 52-year-old Julie Boxley arrested on first-degree murder and arson charges this month stemming from a March 5th house fire that claimed the life of 72-year-old Glenn Andrews, a local butcher. At the time, Boxley was living with Andrews to help care for his sick wife, Linda. Andrews spent two weeks in a burn center before passing away. Boxley also faces charges in a separate case for trying to set her then and husband James on fire in their apartment on Christmas Day 2021 but is yet to be arraigned. James says he awoke to Julie pouring liquid on him while he was in bed. When he realized what was happening he jumped out of bed and asked Julie what's going on. He says she started lighting matches and throwing them at him. He wasn't hurt. Julie's lawyer says she has a history of severe mental health issues. There's more on the story at foxnews.com. Subscribe to the Fox True Crime podcast with Emily Campagno. I'm Gianna Gelosi with your Fox True Crime Minute.
5: Fox Nation presents the 5th Annual Patriot Awards, hosted by Pete Hegseth on November 16th. Celebrate our nation's heroes with your favorite Fox personalities. Tickets are on sale now. Go to foxnation.com slash patriot awards for more information. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com.
6: It's time for your Fox News commentary.
5: Jason Chaffins.
4: What's on your mind? In the aftermath of another disappointing election night for Republicans, Questions need to be asked about supposedly nonpartisan, get out the vote operations Democrats are using to ensure their low propensity voters and only their low propensity voters get to the polls. On March 7th, 2021, executive order on promoting access to voting, President Biden instructed every federal agency to submit a plan to leverage their agency's personnel and assets to help turn out the vote. Citing the need for equity, Biden's order explicitly directed agencies to target black and Native American communities, Hispanic and Latino voters, civil rights and disability rights advocates, convicted felons, and voters who work for the federal government. What does each of these voting blocks have in common? As I explained in my book, The Puppeteers, all of these groups have a long history of lopsided support for Democrats. One of the reasons the left is so good at getting low propensity voters to the polls may be because they figured out how to make taxpayers fund their get out the vote operations. So what did these agencies do ahead of the 2022, 2023 and the upcoming 2024 elections? Taxpayers don't get to know that. The Biden administration has refused to disclose the plans submitted by hundreds of federal agencies claiming executive privilege prevents their release. Why so secretive if it is so good and important? That secrecy argument is bogus on its face, but it may take ongoing lawsuits years to force their disclosure. Meanwhile, Democrats are winning elections with the help of more than 2 million federal employees. Elections are administered by states. Federal employees are hired to administer federal programs, not to help the ruling party get out the vote to specific groups that tend to vote for the ruling party. In fact, federal employees are explicitly prohibited by law from participating in political activities. The truth is, the Biden administration doesn't really want to get out all the votes. They want to get out all the Democratic voters. And it's working very well for them. Nonprofits, unions, and now the federal government work non-stop to get out the preferred vote. Where is the Republican infrastructure to turn out our own low-propensity voters? What is the party doing to support those who are challenging the partisan deployment of federal agencies? Voters will tell you their number one issue is the economy and inflation. But what lobby is out there targeting voters who care about that issue? And where is the dragnet of attorneys fighting for the integrity of the vote? As 2024 approaches, Republicans cannot afford to sit back and watch Democrats vacuum up all their low-propensity voter ballots while the GOP fights among themselves. Republicans have to get serious about challenging the left's dominance in this area. It isn't enough to be right on the issues. Winning campaigns need appealing candidates and a plan to get out the vote. This is the challenge for Republicans. I'm Jason Chaffetz, a Fox News contributor and host of the Jason in the House podcast on Fox News Radio.